Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to author and speaker R. Glenn Kelly, who lost his son at the age of 16, and has since devoted his life to studying and speaking on grief in the workplace, between partners and in men. Also this week, I'm talking about what it really means to be brave and courageous in grief. And no, it's not those moments where people tell you, oh my god, you're so strong. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Just a quick reminder at the top of the show here that my next live grief support hangout is coming up soon on June 24th at 8 p.m. Central Time. This is a private chat room for listeners of this show, so if you'd like to share stories, maybe your grief hangovers from Father's Day if you're anticipating that, or how your friends are or are not navigating grief with you, I would love to make space to support you in this group setting. All you have to do to join us is pledge to support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Just $1 per month gets you the link to join us on June 24th, and when 8 o'clock p.m. rolls around, just click that link to join the live grief support meeting in progress. I'll be there at my little podcasting desk here, taking your questions on grief, loss, and coming back. Again, to join us, simply pledge at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, and you can always find that link in the show notes. For the top of the show today, I want to talk about being a hero versus being courageous in grief. Sometimes when we're grieving, a lot of times when we're grieving, people like to tell us that we're strong. People like to tell us that we're being so brave, that we're so courageous for going through this process. And in reality, I mean, at least when I hear this, I feel very, very, very far from strong or brave or courageous. Because when other people say those words, strong, brave, courageous, they're talking about the world's definition, which looks like keeping a stiff upper lip, keeping calm and carrying on, continuing to live life when all we want to do is fall apart, continuing to show up for work and doctor's appointments and kids and family events when the worst has happened these superhero acts, these making it happen despite all odds, words of strong, brave, and courageous, they're really harmful. And they make us believe that acting like a hero or someone that's doing a really, really good job of covering up their pain and recovering from loss, they make us believe that that is the most valuable thing while we're grieving. If I have to tell you the truth, grief growers, which I do on this show, I hate when people call me strong or brave or courageous. I'm not usually bad at like taking compliments, but when people tell me I'm being strong or brave or courageous because I have survived loss and continue to live, I'm I it it doesn't land well with me. I hate when people see me as a hero of my grief because I don't think that's what I am. I don't feel like a hero in grief. What feels strong and brave and courageous to me is not the world's definition. And I have a hunch that so many of you resonate with this concept. Because in my world, continuing to live life when the worst has happened 
is operating by default. It's the thing you go back to doing. You you go back to living your life because after loss, like what else is there to do but fall back into these routines and patterns? I'm not brave for doing that. I'm not anywhere close to a hero for doing that. When I'm continuing to live my life after loss, I am literally leaning on the only structure or control or surety I have. I'm doing what I have to do to fulfill my to-do list or my list of required tasks every single day. Get up, get dressed, go to work, come home, cook, go to bed, repeat. When my mom died, I was in college, so I went back to school. I went back to work on campus. I continued directing the play I'd started directing before winter break, and my mom's death occurred. Like... Operating in the world again after a loss, it's kind of a given. It's the next thing that we have to do after loss happens. And yet, people sit here and call us strong or courageous or brave. People saw me as a hero who was conquering my loss by showing up for life again. Somehow physically being there for my life meant that my mind and my heart were healed too. And it was absolutely nuts. Like, it just struck me as so bizarre. It felt so weird. I didn't know what else to do when people told me I was brave or strong or courageous, so I just let their words land on me. I don't know that I ever really absorbed them, though. They didn't belong. I wasn't trying to be strong or courageous or brave, and I didn't feel that way. I was just showing up and putting on a mask of grief. People told me they saw me that way as strong, courageous, brave. But it couldn't have been farther from the truth. One of my favorite authors and researchers, her name is Brene Brown, you may have watched her Netflix special, A Call to Courage. She says that true courage has nothing to do with strength or bravery or being viewed as heroic. She has this really cool quote that I'll read here for you today. She says, The root of the word courage is cor, C-O-R, the Latin word for heart, In one of its earliest forms, the word courage had a very different definition than it does today. Courage originally meant to speak one's mind by telling all of one's heart. Over time, this definition has changed, and today courage is more synonymous with being heroic. Heroics is important, and we certainly need heroes, but I think we've lost touch with the idea that speaking honestly and openly about who we are, about what we're feeling, and about our experiences, good and bad, is the definition of courage. Heroics are often about putting our life on the line. Ordinary courage is about putting our vulnerability on the line. And in today's world, that's pretty extraordinary. And that's from Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection, which is a really great read. So I'm registering here today. The reason that I didn't feel brave or strong or courageous was because I wasn't being any of those things, according to Brene Brown's definition. Putting on a mask or tamping down grief or asking my pain to go live in the basement so I could get on with my life was not courageous. It may have looked heroic, but it was not courageous. Courage is showing up with our pain in a vulnerable way, speaking the truths of our heart, good and bad, and putting ourselves and our hearts on the line in an open and honest way. I remember I was courageous when I cried in my professor's office about my mom and asked for her help during my thesis presentation. I was courageous when I stood up to my dad and told him I did have hope and I didn't believe that loss could ever make me bitter. I was courageous by starting this podcast by sharing my story and my tears and my vulnerability and my observations, literally a lot of this stuff comes out of my own head. Every single week, I flip on the mic and hand the power over to you, grief growers. You could take me down for anything that I say at any time. And yet here, this little piece of heartwork has grown into a gorgeous, supportive community. And that's really courageous, I think. I'm not sure who said being courageous is about feeling the fear and doing it anyway, But that's so much of what we need to do in grief, grief growers. We don't need heroes. We need humans. We need people who are willing to share the hard stuff and have the hard conversations and be truly courageous in the midst of these things that totally break us apart. So I have some questions for you this week. Where are you hiding out 
in your pain? What are you afraid to say or admit? What's the mask that you're putting on that prevents you from being truly courageous? If you want to really be courageous, if you want to show up on behalf of your heart and the person that you loved and lost, I encourage you to reframe courage in a whole new way. Putting on a mask, or what the grief recovery method calls Academy Award-winning recovery, being a hero of your loss, there's a reason why it doesn't feel good to do it. Because it's not genuinely courageous, and it doesn't really honor what we're going through. We don't get to be ourselves, and our grief doesn't get to speak when we put on a mask, and we suffer and stay silent and wounded as a result. I have a friend who's studying masculinity and emotion right now, which is something we'll actually get into later with our Glenn Kelly in the interview. And in all of the research and reading that my friend is doing, he's recognizing that societal norms, like the world's definitions of brave, strong, and courageous, interfere with men's ability to get help for mental health issues and grief. And he's trying this thing where he's hanging out with his guy friends and he asks the usual, how are you? To which his friend will say, well, I'm fine. How are you? And then when they ask the question back, my friend is responding, well, actually, I'm not doing that great right now. And then his friend says, wow, man, me too. See, I've really been struggling with XYZ. And they launch into this whole conversation about what's actually going on in their lives. When my friend and I spoke recently, he said it's been amazing the kinds of emotional conversations he's had with other men just by opening up and admitting that he's having a hard time. He's made himself courageous in that he's the first to start the conversation. He's willing to be the first domino to fall, to be courageous so that his friends, these other men, can share their stories too. Being labeled courageous is not something we choose. That's a label. That's a definition that gets thrust upon us in the aftermath of loss. Oh God, you're so strong. Oh God, you're so brave. Oh wow, you're being so courageous through this. Being courageous, actually being courageous in grief is something that we do choose. A conscious action, however big or small, that honors the truth of where we are in our loss. We must choose to be courageous to admit that we're struggling, to speak the names of our dead loved ones, to tell it like it is, and to ask for help. I understand that there are places where we do not feel like it's safe to be courageous. Certain people and spaces are more judgmental than less, like certain Facebook groups and religious organizations are so ready to heap blame and shame on people. They're more ready to do that than they are to listen. But please know that how people respond to your acts of courageous vulnerability, that says more about them than it does about you. You're not responsible for how people respond to you bearing your heart. You're just responsible for bearing it. I remember being afraid of being seen as weak and broken and unhealed. I remember being afraid of sharing my struggle on a special day or a holiday because it might bring down the vibe of the party. I remember being afraid that no place is safe for my heart and my soul. I have been all of these places. But I want to tell you today that there is a place for your grieving heart to be courageous grief growers. You are allowed to show up as the messy, dark, disorganized mess that you are or think you are in this moment. And like we talked about last week in the grief of feeling stuck, you're allowed to show up stuck and lost and purposeless. There is room for that here. I've created space just for this. So if you'd like to join a group space that shares the real courageous stuff of grief, I hope you'll join us in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of this show. If you're not ready yet to be courageous in front of people, which I've also totally been there, my email inbox is open to you. Just my eyes. Shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. I love hearing from each and every one of you listeners, and I'm honored to be this safe place that your heart can land. We can start so many courageous conversations when we feel safe, and I love making the space to do so. Courage and grief is being willing to be first, grief growers, to be the vocal domino that says, I'm having a hard time today, and setting off a host of me-toos that fall and admit their own grief and struggle 
and lost. Life after loss is really, really hard. But we don't have to pretend to be heroes through it all. It doesn't serve us. And it doesn't serve our grief, either. So let the mask fall just a little bit today. It's safe for you to be here. I'm sending so much love to you and your courageous heart. Up next, my conversation with R. Glenn Kelly, whose son Jonathan died in his arms when he was just 16 years old. Grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. R. Glenn Kelly, known to his friends as Ron, lost his only child, Jonathan, at the age of 16. He published his first book, Sometimes I Cry in the Shower, and has since received invitations to speak at conferences, businesses, and many organizations across America. Using his life experience as a bereaved parent, business executive, former law enforcement officer, and Marine, he tells the truth about tricky topics like child loss, how grief differs between romantic partners and genders, and why it's absolutely necessary for employers to give their employees safe and comfortable spaces to bring grief to work with them. Today, R. Glenn Kelly continues to provide keynote and workshop presentations for bereavement organizations at large, but also offers grief in the workplace seminars to aid business leaders in mitigating over $100 billion in annual revenue loss to companies across America. You can find him at rglennkelly.com. Ron, thank you so much for joining us on the show today to talk about so many things, uh, but grief at work as well. We'll start where we start all of our conversations, and I'll ask you to share your lost story with us. Sure. I, uh, I became a father in 1997 uh, on a, a wonderful day, January 31st of that year. Jonathan Taylor Kelly came into my life, but unexpectedly, He was born with an undiagnosed congenital heart defect known as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Basically, uh, the left side of his womb had failed to, excuse me, left side of his heart had failed to develop in the womb. And uh, unfortunately, when they handed him to his mother and I, they said he probably wasn't going to make it through the night, but he did. Uh, Through the miraculous uh, arrival of a phenomenal uh, pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon who rebuilt Jonathan's heart over a a uh, three-year period, a series of four excruciating open-heart surgeries, finally gave Jonathan a prognosis for a full life, albeit with some known medical interventions that would come along the way. Uh, unbeknown to us, uh, I took him in for a, uh, and I'm going to give you the air quotes now, the relatively routine heart catheterization hmm. that uh, he'd been through a couple times before in his life as just sort of an exploratory measure to see how he was doing. And the uh, heart cath went fine, but in recovery, his, his fragile little heart failed and they were unable to bring him back. And I took great solace in the fact that I was able to actually be there and hold him as he took his final breath before he, wait, he went to wait for me on the other side. Um, after he was gone, I was your typical mess for quite some time and wandered around without an identity. Him being my only child, I, I didn't know if I was still a parent anymore, if I was still a father. And one day, and, and you know, whether you believe in me that it was an actual visit by John or whether it was a, a series of, let's just say, chemical hormones imbalanced in my head at the time, he came to me. Uh, and the first thing he said to me was, how dare you not grieve my loss? And how dare you think that you're not still my father? And that changed my world around. From that day forward, I went back into a life of service. And living out his legacy is what I do today. That's what I call it. Uh, I wrote a book probably about six months after that called Sometimes I Cry in the Shower. And then I started getting invitations to to speak publicly as one of the rare males who would stand on a stage in front of others and express the fact that 
I felt pain. Uh, and it's been wonderful since then. I'd rather not have this life of peace and purpose, but if I can say this without offending anybody, it was his passing that sent a, a humility and a compassion in me that just changed my life forever. It's his legacy and it's his gift and it's where I stand today. I think that was so incredibly touching. And that's the case for so many of us who are in this line of work is that we would never have asked to be here in a million bajillion years and never, I don't think that anybody sets out to do grief work, No, um, but it breaks our hearts so badly that it calls to us to show up for it. And I, the first thing that I wrote down um, is, is that you had a, a son, his mm -hmm. heart was rebuilt four times over the course of his life through four surgeries. Um, and it just strikes me so incredibly that you would sign up and that he would sign up for this life of knowing that kind of pain. And, and I think that we all have lessons that we're supposed to learn when we come down. And, and I truly do. And, you know, I, and I've told people many times, if I could do it again, even knowing the last day, I would do it knowing that he had his plan. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't know our plan. Or fortunately, I should say, we don't know our plans when we come down. But that was his plan. And I can only just take a great deal of humility in the fact that he and, and our maker chose his 16 years to spend with me on this earth. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. Um, and I'm, I'm curious now to know how you, you were there. I, I wrote down the phrase, typical mess. <laughs> yeah. um, getting to that place from, wow, there was a plan here. Because the first things that people like to tell us when loss has happened is, oh, it's a part of the plan. You know, heaven gained an angel. You'll see them again. Like all of these, these platitudes. And usually that doesn't help, but we need to get there ourselves if we ever choose to get there at all. And so I'm wondering what that kind of heart exploration has been like for you, or if that's something you did believe from the very beginning? No, of course I did not. I mean, there's so many things that we come into a realization afterwards that if somebody else would have told me that before I came into the, the just wonder of realizing it myself, that, that we do have a plan and that I was part of John's plan in that. I can't say that to anybody else in their loss to give them comfort. There are so many things in our realization after a loss that we have to come to ourselves. It gives me comfort to know that I believe that. Others may not believe that. Um, we're all so unique as snowflakes and fingerprints. And, and I give great credence to anybody's beliefs. We have so many people that, that don't believe in a higher power, that do believe in universal powers, that believe in this and believe in that. And we all have to grieve in our own way, but we all have to come to an acceptance and understanding in our own way. And we have to give each other at least the ability to do that. For me, I'm a believer in the fact that we've been here before and we'll be here again until we learn the lesson of what I consider unconditional love. Um, if we come down for, I, I hope to be down here for 90 years before I learn this phase of it. If part of John's plan was to be here for only 16, then that was his plan. Mm. I think that's so well said and so inclusive as well because we don't all get to the same place this would be the first time that i'm actually considering like oh what if i was a part of my mom's plan or that she would have was a part of mine when my mom died in 2013 and i believe i mean i'm six years out i believe in some ways that that was true because her death would not have launched me down this path of doing grief work but for so many other larger things i'm like oh that's interesting i wonder if that is the case for me and so for for people listening who are wondering oh, maybe my person's death was a part of some plan. Uh, it can be a thing that like lights a spark of interest or curiosity. Like, oh, that's new. I've never heard that phrase that way before. It does. And we, we all try to find comfort in our pain and in our loss. And again, it, it doesn't readily come when somebody else suggests that. Um, I probably would have been highly offended if somebody would have said, hey, it's part of a higher plan. Um, I had to come to that realization myself and that understanding. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. And it kind of, it does something that, that I really appreciated as a griever and that's give 
give me my autonomy back. Give me my ability to decide because I think people treat grievers almost like infants sometimes where it's like, I'm going to tell you exactly what just happened and how I'm making sense of it right. in the hopes that it will help you forgetting that I still have a brain. I'm just grieving. <laughs> yes. I'm going to turmoil right now, but I'm, I'm strong enough to, to figure out my path as I go. There are times that I'm going to need help. And many times, you know this as well as I do, that help comes best when somebody is just there and not telling me how to walk down my path. Um, it also comes very well when we get together with other grievers, somebody that's been through the fire that we're going through. Um, and they generally know there's not a whole lot you can say other than I'm here, right? Mm. I think this is a perfect opportunity to bring up these, uh, I get chills as you said this, um, these ideas of identity, of he was my only child. Am I still a father? Yes. Uh, and I wonder who showed up in your life or if you sought out fellow uh, childless fathers in your life to to gain wisdom from or where you found this circle of people who had also experienced loss like this. I was blessed. It, it, when I wrote that first book, I started getting a number of contacts from uh, a number of nonprofit organizations out there that did have the national conferences every year where there were 12 and 13 and 1500 people in attendance. And I started doing workshops with parents that had lost a child. And I would like to say that, that I hope that I left behind some content for them, but I greedily took as much as I could from everyone that I talked to, because everyone that I talked to basically laid a stone down on my path as I walked. And it's not so much that I was looking for someone to give me guidance as I was listening to how everybody else felt. Because one of my biggest transitions, and I speak about this in that first book, is I had to come to the determination that I was okay because I wasn't grieving the way that my spouse was. I wasn't grieving the way that my in-laws were. I, I was grieving the way that I was. And my revelation was that it was my grief and I was okay. And, and the reason why that was such a, an epiphany for me is because there were those periods where she was crying and I was not. So I would look at her and I'd think of myself, my God, did I not love my child that much because I'm not debilitated in my tears? And there actually came that time when she said to me, did you not love our child as much as you say you do because you're not crying like I am? But then I had to come to the realization, it's who I am. It's how I process my grief internally. Grief is an internal process. Mourning is external. Grief is internal. And it only becomes external when it becomes overwhelming and more than we can handle inside. So the revelation was, guess what? This is a way I grieve. And I'm okay, right? I'm fascinated by this idea of mourning is external, grieving is internal. And I literally just wrote down, crying is not evidence that you're grieving. Crying oh. is crying. <laughs> oh, no. do you know, and this is a part where, yes, I get into the diversities in between the way men and women process emotions and express emotions, but men actually experience more emotions on a daily basis than women do. But we are internalizers. We internalize our mood, or I, I was going to say mood because we internalize our emotions, but you know us as moody little so-and-sos, don't you? <laughs> that's, that's how we express our moods is we just, or our emotions, we just become moody, right? Mm -hmm. But we do experience a great deal of emotions and we internalize them. We don't put them on the outside and grief is an internal process. The, the, the emotions you feel, you feel them inside. They only become outward when it become overwhelming. So how did all of this, uh, this research, this exploration into grief change and shape your idea of yourself as a father, but also your role within the context of this marriage to your well, wife? It, and I'll be honest with you, that marriage has ended. And that mm -hmm. marriage ended not too long after Jonathan passed away. And if you think it's hypocritical for me to go and discuss a lasting marriage with couples who have lost a child, it's not. Because one of the great evidences that I bring up in the fact that uh, child loss does not end in marital separation is that it's usually a marriage that has an underlying condition that will end in separation after a child loss. I have met so many amazing, amazing couples who have actually become stronger after a child loss because they did not have underlying 
situations in the marriage before it happened. They were able to turn to each other as they always have and become stronger in the crisis. Mm, that's a really well-phrased answer. And that's something uh, that I hear quite a bit, both from guests on the show and from listeners of the show, as a fear, is that I lost my child and now my marriage isn't going well and I'm afraid. Actually, a, a very sad knee-jerk response from, I hate to say, clinicians, clergy, people that do counseling support will have a knee-jerk reaction that is going to maybe end in the end of the relationship. Now, it's going to present some difficulties because, and I'll just say you and I, if we were married, we're going to grieve differently probably because we are two different people, whether we're different because we're male and female or different because we're male and male or female and female, we're still unique and individual. We're as unique as fingerprints and snowflakes. What we need to have and need to maintain is that awareness and understanding that we are not each other and we're going to emote in different ways. We're going to process our grief in different ways and just be there for that other person when it happens. But also be there to support the other person. The, the male and female are the typical models in this because 80% of women will respond in a feminine way. 80% of men will respond in a, a, a male way. But let's just say that, you know, I'm looking at you and you're always crying because you are more external with your emotions. And, and I'm a male. I'm, I'm a systemizer and an organizer. I'm action oriented. So I'm doing things to help me through my grief by taking action, but I can't get them done because I have to sit there with you while you cry. And that creates a little bit of animosity. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah. So it, it has to be a give and take where she has to realize. And again, I'm talking about the, the, the great majority of both men and women, but she has to realize sometimes he needs to go to a cave and he needs to realize sometimes I need to sit there and let her cry on my shoulder, right? Yeah. And I think what happens too, I was literally having this conversation with somebody the other day of like, do you remember the first time as a kid, you realized that other people's families don't live like yours or that when you get older and enter the workforce, like, oh, people don't have the same workflow or processing around priorities that I do. And then in your first relationships, you're like, oh, you don't show romance the same way I do. And so it's this continual discovery uh, over our lifetimes of that people are not the same as us. But what sucks is that when grief rolls through or when we're dealing with a really heartbreaking loss, we're so inside of ourselves and processing grief internally that we forget to look for the fact that that person's going to be grieving really differently than we are. But the, the wonderful, beautiful thing about it is when you're with somebody that you do really care for and, and there are no issues and you've been together, it's usually because you have these differences that brought you together. It's those differences that you have that support me and the differences that I have that support you, right? And that comes across when we're in a personal crisis, especially something as horrific as grief is the fact that I know that there are things that you're going to do that I can't do and I'm going to do that you can't do and we're going to support each other. But it's in that crisis where, again, it's a situation where, number one, we're feeling emotions that we've probably either never felt before or if we have, we're feeling them now at intensities that we've never felt before in our life. So we're trying to deal with our own, who am I? And then we're looking across the aisle at our spouse going, well, who are you? Uh, <laughs> never seen this out of you before. So it's, it takes that understanding. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any uh, tips for people listening on discovering or remembering a partner's gifts in the midst of loss, as opposed to focusing on, holy crap, this is really different. Yeah. Just uh, there, there are no hints. There's nothing other than I hate to say it, basic communication, even in crisis, nobody's going to prepare for a loss. It, it, we don't do that, okay? Um, but we can prepare for personal crisis. And we've all been through, as, as couples, we've been through personal crises together. And I think we know how we're going to handle them. Um, those couples that are strong will remain strong and they'll support each other or at least understand what the other one is going through. Um, if nothing else, they will tolerate the other one. We've seen an awful lot of toleration going on, and I see it with the couples that I speak to in, in my grief work. Um, you know, he goes to a cave, and I don't understand why. He wants to be quiet, and I don't get it, but I'm going to let him. 
Well, by golly, that's probably the best thing you can do. <laughs> let him do it. Don't try to stop him. And, and he's, she's always crying or she always, she always wants to go to a meeting and meet with other people and talk about this grief. And my gosh, I can't understand how a woman could do that. Well, she's a social animal. Let her do it. I want to go back to this, this visitation of John coming to you and saying, how dare you? How dare you? Uh, because I've had this in my own way, actually a story I've never shared here on the podcast where uh, I, I'm a Reiki practitioner. And as I was being attuned to level two, um, you go through this practice with a bunch of other people who are also being attuned to Reiki level two, and you essentially sit in silence in a room and channel the energy that is Reiki. And some of you may believe in this and some may not. Um, but I got this, this image of like a widening channel that was this amethyst purple color. And literally the universe showed up and wow. said, who are you to feel shame? Who are you to feel like a victim in this lifetime? Look at right. all of the gifts you have in the world. And how dare you? Mm -hmm. And it was just the fact that your experience was the same language that came through for mine, although the voice behind it was different, was just fascinating. And he, he pointed to these identities that you felt like you lost. Right. And I think he used he used me throughout the whole thing because I had gone through it was it was approximately six months after his loss. And during that period, I had done a number of things that were typical in trying to avoid or repress my grief because, you know, quite frankly, I was a I was a guy in a world where I had fifteen hundred employees who worked for me. And, you know, I went back to work quickly so that I could be in some area where I could control things because I couldn't control the death of my child. So I had to have control. Uh, and in that control, I was also able to continue to avoid my grief by saying, hey, I've got work to do. I've got this to do. But, you know, when you come home in the evening and your child is not there and you sit around and you realize, you know, I, I, I don't have a child anymore. I, I don't have a son with me anymore. I, I'm not a father. What is my identity? Who am I? And I had spent the early part of my adulthood as a, a U.S. Marine and then came out and became a cop. And moved on to uh, federal law enforcement until John was born in 97 when I stopped that so I could help with his home care. And I went to work for a private company as an executive and, and did that throughout his life. But you know, when he came to me in the shower, it was just a typical morning where I'd gotten up to get ready for work and I was in the shower. And like every other morning, I had completely repressed my grief. I'd avoided his room. I, I didn't stare at pictures on the wall of him when I walked by them. And I got in the shower and I wasn't really thinking about it, but I knew that the forecast that day was for snow. And I thought to myself, I wonder if John's going to be in school today because it's going to snow. And then I thought, oh my God, I thought I was able to block out all the thoughts of that. And in that very second, I felt him inside of me and all around me in that shower. And it's, it's a feeling I've never had before. And quite frankly, it's not one that he's come to me in that presence again, although he visits me often in other ways. But I heard him. And when I heard his first words were, how dare you? It, it wasn't audible. It was, I heard it in my head, but it was like it came from every bone or every fiber in my body. And at that point, I just dropped down to my knees and, and he continued on. He said, how dare you not grieve me? How dare you not stink or not think you're still my father? And I, I, I had nothing to say. I mean, I wasn't even in tears yet, but they were welling up in my mind. And he said to me, are you still a Marine? And I said, yeah, once a Marine, always a Marine. He goes, are you still a cop? And I said, yeah, I'll always be a cop too. It's something that's, it's in my past. It's in my body. It's who I am. He goes, how do you think you're not still my father? And at that point I got it. I understood exactly what he was trying to say to me. And that changed my life around. And he left at that point and never said another word that I could feel in my body like that again. Although we talked frequently, just in other ways. And he visits often in my dreams and gosh, he's with me all the time. But those were the only times I think he felt it was a strong enough need to make that strong of a presence in my life. And it changed things around instantly for me. That is so incredible. And it points to, I'm like, all of my revelations have also happened in the shower. So I'm like, I don't know what goes on in there, but it's a very magical place. It's where we get um, Claire's thinking. I mean, you know, <laughs> those aha moments. 
you know? And it's so funny. There's something about the clothes being off. We're totally vulnerable. We're like doing, you know, self-care activities of shampooing our hair and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and your mind doesn't really have anywhere else to go because you're, you're busy being in the shower. Yeah. Uh, and, I think and- it's one place that we allow our minds, much like meditation, we allow our minds to roam freely at that point. It's so, that is so striking and so funny to me at the same time. And yet I love that he used this framework that you can understand. Are you still in the military? Are you still a cop? Then why would this identity ever go away just because my physicality is not here? Yeah. That's wild. Like I, I got chills saying that and he showed up with, you know, some sergeant force that you would understand. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, they did. It, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pleasant at first, but you know, he said, and then, you know, I thought later my own revelations were, you know, my mother and father are both passed, both way too young, but very dear and loving people. And I miss them dearly. But you know what? I'm still their son and they're still my parents. I, I would never for a moment stop to think that I was not still the child of, of Don and Barb Kelly, you know? So how could I think that I wasn't still a father? Yeah. Yeah. And now I carry him with me everywhere I go. He inspires me in every way. So he's, he's just as much here, although I can't touch him. He's just as much here and a part of me every day. That's so beautiful and something that resonates with me too. And I think, you know, it might be trickier for parents of who lose children because I've, I've never considered that I was not the daughter of my mother, even though my mother is dead. Right. Uh, but considering having children, I was like, well, I'm not doing the actions of being a parent. Am I still a parent? Right. The thing, cause there's really no, there's really no actions of being a child or being a son or a daughter or a child of a parent. It's like, you just are down the lineage, mm-hmm. uh, but somehow being a parent seems to come with this, this list of qualifiers. Yeah. And so if you're not doing them, then you must not be one. And, and, uh, and that's not the case. That's not true. And this yeah. comes up too in instances of miscarriage and stillbirth where parents never really get the opportunity to, to parent through action outside of the womb. Right. And cause you can, you're a parent mentally, of course, in the way that you take care of a child before it even reaches your oh, arms. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But, uh, but in terms of, you know, being able to nurse it and diaper and watch it grow up and help it walk and all these other things like, are you still parents? And that identity crisis comes up over and over and over again, even though these parents themselves would never question whether or not they were still the son's daughter's children of the parents that, that birthed, raised them. Uh, so it's interesting how when a child dies, a parent will question their identity, but it's not true always in the reverse. No, no, no. And, and there's so many things that, that you know, I, I held on to a, a very poor ego for a long time. And that poor ego uh, lasted around some of the things that I used to be in my life. And, you know, if, if I'm able to do that to bolster my own ego, why wasn't I able to do that to bolster my fatherhood, even though my son was gone? And those are some of the same things that hit me. And like I said, he's He's with me now. I would not want to tell anybody that I wouldn't rather have him back. I'm not saying it's equal in any way, but I am blessed to have him with me every day. I'm glad he's there. Like, that's the thought that's coming to me is like, I'm glad he's there with you. He is. Sometimes I, I think that uh, I might have some problems with him. I joke about this. I'm saying this jokingly, but I, I talk with him more than I talk with God. <laughs> I ask him if I'm wearing the right color tie or should I do do this? (laughs) Well, sometimes it feels like, uh, and this happens in my world too, where I don't talk to the universe on a regular basis, but I will speak to my mother and it sometimes, it feels like we can come to them with more human problems. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop and go, Hey, why don't you speak to me anymore? But I am. I'm I'm still not talk to me. (laughs) I'm speaking to the universe or to God. I'm still doing the same thing. I'm just doing it through John. So, but it's my little way of laughing that I do. I stand in front of the mirror, and if I'm getting ready and getting ready to do something I haven't done before or something that's questionable, I go, "Hey, John, is this the right thing to do?" So there's there's our maker up there going. You used to ask me those questions. I still am. Just through a different channel. Maybe somebody yeah. I, I, uh-huh. I know I'm a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Will not smite me for the wrong tie. <laughs> if I can insert a religious joke in there. I know. Um, I know. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I want to shift into this place because you were going through your, your resume a little bit of being a, a police officer and then uh, being in the military as well. And then being an executive with 1500 employees. And I know one of the greatest works that you do in relation to grief, like parallel to grief is with grief in the workplace. Uh-huh. Can you speak more on taking grief to work with you? Because I think what you did jumping back into work needing something to control, needing something that, okay, I'm definitely in charge of this part of my life happens so often. And it's a societal grief myth of if we just get busy enough, the grief goes away. Um, so I'm wondering what you learned and are continuing to teach and learn about grief in the workplace. Just that, that, that you know, once we go back to work and, and I, I'm not faulting anybody for saying this other than society at large, but you know, as well as I do, bereavement leave is, is not enough. I mean, the average across the United States is three days of bereavement leave, paid bereavement leave. Um, and, and there's a lot of good companies out there that allow you to take uh, unused vacation time or even unpaid time off so that you can you can go through a bereavement period, yet there's not too many of us that are independently wealthy enough to miss that much work where we can afford unpaid time off. Regardless, though, we're going to come back to work. And when we come back to work, it's going to be too soon. Uh, I, I don't care if it's three weeks. I don't care if it's three days. We've just come out of a transitional period where early in our grief, the emotional waves that hit us are unending and they seem relentless. And we're just transitioning from that time where we're learning to at least survive again before the next wave hits us. And now we're going back into a work environment. And at home, we've almost learned, if this makes sense, we've almost learned or we're learning to deal with it because we're in a safe environment at home. But now we go to work and so many workplaces, if they're not hostile to it, which there are a few places out there are, many of them are still indifferent to grief. And we don't want to go to some place that's indifferent to our pain. We don't want to show our pain. We want to try to hide it. So many people, you know, we talk about the grief mask that we put on. We show people that we're okay when we're really not inside. But at the same time, the complete indifference to grief has just become something that, that I really want to go out there and begin teaching more of the corporate American bosses out there. There's not anything that you really have to do other than just recognize that your employee is your bereaved employee is grieving. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that the way that work and business and the structure, especially here in the United States and corporate America, how it's built, the focus is on productivity and not always on humanity. Mm -hmm. And this is something that uh, Cheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook speaks to in her book, Option B. And once she lost her husband unexpectedly, she went back into Facebook and overhauled their bereavement policies with the help of a lot of uh, people in HR there. Um, and she echoed that same sentiment that that bereavement leave, like three days ain't enough yeah. uh, to to do anything. And I had the, the blessing slash curse of losing my mom very young when I was in college and I was on winter break. So I had about two weeks before I had to go back and face the world again. And I wasn't going through exam season and I wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't finals or anything like that, but going back to a college campus again, even the Institute of college right. uh, professors and classes, anybody who's in a leadership role needs to know that at some point within their leadership capacity, they're going to be dealing with somebody who's grieving or a lot of people who are grieving, especially in the case where a workplace loses a coworker. And so there's, there's a workplace grief also. If we go by the figures from the American Hospice Foundation, every year in the United States, over 4 million active U.S. employees will lose a loved one, which is quite a hefty role. Those same people will give you the figures that Every year, 10 to 15% of working-aged adults will lose a child. Now, if we talk about, let, let's go to the American Psychiatric Foundation, who tells you that in grief, for everyone who's grieving, 10 to 20% will go through what we know to be complicated grief, some form of complicated grief, 10 to 20%. Well, if we're having 4 million employees every year, newly, 4 million employees will lose a loved one every year. That means that every year, 400,000 to 600,000 bereaved employees return to work with some condition of complicated grief. Is that not shocking all in itself? But you know what? I believe it. And right now, American businesses are losing over $100 billion in annual revenue 
due to the hidden direct and indirect costs of grief in the workplace because they're indifferent to it. They want to farm it out. They don't want to have to deal with that in the workplace, but they are. They just don't realize it's adversely. What does grief cost in the workplace? What does that look like? Well, some of the, and I'll give you one example because I broached it just a minute ago, but one of the biggest hidden costs, and it's a direct cost of grief in the workplace is absenteeism because after the loss of a loved one, the average bereaved employee will take an additional 30 days of unscheduled leave within the first year. That's beyond bereavement leave. Now, that's a great cost in itself. If you look at the Department of Labor, they'll show you that, that unscheduled absenteeism in the workplace costs businesses over $400 billion every year, which is a lot. But now we've got bereaved employees that are going to take an average of 30 days of unscheduled leave due to their loss. And why do they do that? They do that because, as I touched on earlier, the workplace is uncomfortable. When you and I are in mental crisis for anything, the only place that we want to deal with that mental crisis is in a place of safety and comfort. True? Oh, God, absolutely. So when the workplace is not that safe and comfortable environment, and you you wake up Tuesday morning in a wave of horrific grief, you're going to shelter in place. You're going to stay in a place where you feel safe and comfortable so that you can process that crisis in your mind. And if we can get the workplace to to just realize if you just make it safe and comfortable for your employees, make an environment where if they come to work and they feel a wave of grief, they're more than free to take a walk. They're more than free to go to some place of solitude in the workplace if it's available. They're more than free to take the rest of the day off. Yeah, this was one of the very first uh, blog pieces that I wrote on grief, and it was called "Crafting an Escape Plan." Because mm-hmm. I had I had sat down with a friend of mine who was getting ready to lose her grandmother, and she was like, "What if it happens while I'm at work? Like, what am I going to do?" I said, "We're going to craft you an escape plan. Very good. We're going to find all the stairwells that you can go cry in. We're going to see if there's an office without glass windows where you can shut a door a uh, and take a phone call. Like, there's this process of." So many people, and I don't know the figures on this, but so many people are anticipating a loss Mm -hmm. in the near future, whether they're actively caretaking someone or they know they have a relative, maybe even across the country that is ill or unwell. Um, And so, so many people are suspended in this state of, I'm anticipating a call at some point. And I'm like, we got to get you out of there. And so whether you're in the grocery store and you're like, here's my plan, I'm going to abandon the cart, go to the car, pack a bag and go to the hospital. Like in that order, it just helps you start to act out the process of what's about to happen. But if your workplace isn't even safe for that, then you have all of a sudden not only created a place that is not safe, but almost a place that is hostile. Right. And there are, I mean, you've got to figure our corporate America has done a wonderful job of moving forward in, in welfare and so many things that they're doing for the employee. They become far more employee based, but Mortality is an uncomfortable topic. It's not one that they openly discuss in business meetings and planning sessions and things like that. But they figure it's a very, very private moment and private issues should be kept outside of the workplace. That's a wrong attitude to have because no matter what, if I'm having a bad day at home, I'm bringing it to work. Am I not? Oh, yeah. Uh, You are at work who you are at home. And if you're having problems at home, you're going to have it at work. Now, the, the biggest way that it gets farmed out is through employee assistance programs, right? Everybody's heard of those. And they are, and I'm not knocking EAPs, they are wonderful. They, they provide wonderful mental health counselors and assistance for mental health. But guess what? Only 3 to 7% of eligible employees ever take advantage of an offered EAP. There's a stigma around EAPs because it basically, well, the stigma lies in the fact that mostly it it's taken advantage of by people who are alcoholic or drug addicted. Uh, and even though there's confidentiality, nobody wants to be found out, you know, going to an EAP counselor because then it might put a black mark on my employment, right? But they want to farm it out to an EAP and say that they've done everything that they could do. The problem is that, and you know this, well, you might not know the exact figure, but guess what? In the course of a lifetime, the average person will spend over 90,000 hours at work. And we will spend more awake time with people at work than we do with our loved ones at home. 
So you tell me where the greatest influence comes from. Because if you give me an appointment for a counselor, say tomorrow, I'm grieving right now at two o'clock on the job. Right? Yeah. So they don't need to be mental health counselors. I'm not saying any employer does, but they need to recognize it. They need to have awareness and understanding of it. Make sense? It does. And it speaks also to this idea that I think people are afraid that we need more qualifications in order to talk about grief. Nope. I actually spoke about this with a, a fellow grief podcaster. She's like, do I need a degree or something? And I'm like, you lost your mom. Like, yeah. that's enough yeah. so to, to talk about your own experience. Again, going very back to the beginning of our conversation, we can't tell other people how to grieve or what their story or what their plan is or was. Um, but to share your own story and say, hey, I'm a safe place for this takes absolutely no degree and no level of experience. And I'm a big advocate of peer support because I would much rather speak with someone else who's been through the fire, although that fire is going to be different than mine, but I would much rather speak with somebody who's been through the fire than somebody who has got a, an education but has never experienced it. Does that make sense? Yes, and even uh, educational fields uh, like I mean, I was a psychology minor in college and we spent one week on grief. So even times a lot of our mental health and therapeutic practitioners aren't grief equipped. I was uh, actually astonished to find that that uh, I'd been invited, uh, honored actually a couple of times to speak in a, a prominent uh, psychiatrist class at the University of Memphis twice. Um, astonished to find out since he specialized in thanatology and grief that it was a large portion of his class that actually were practicing mental health professionals. And they took his class because they said that the, the context of grief was either glossed over so quickly or almost eliminated from their course studies. Yeah. It's, a, it's, like, it's like we need to protect grief from being untaught. Yes. In, in universities, I was like, this is nuts because it's something that all of us, ex if we haven't experienced it already, we're gonna. We don't, we don't condone it, but we understand it because if, if I had a tagline, it would be mortality is too uncomfortable for people to discuss unless they've been through it, right? Mm -hmm. um, mine, when I went back to work, I mean, some of the, you know, I could tell many, many stories about what I went through, but you know, there were other people there that worked with me that, that had children, that had a son. And to look at me, guess what went through their mind? Oh, crap. I'm going to lose mine. Yeah, that could be me. Mm -hmm. And that very thought makes you want to turn and walk the other way. Mortality is an uncomfortable topic for people. How do we get to a place where we maybe not get comfortable with the idea of mortality, but maybe where it doesn't scare us so much that we're silent? Well, I'm, I'm going to try it in the workplace. I've been doing it for quite some time now. And I hate to say it, but I'm doing it by hitting them in the wallet. Um, I'm being compassionate about it. and. My take on this is, is a very unique one, and that's the fact that I did spend 17 years as a very successful business executive. I'm not going in the door saying that, look, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, you need to spend all your money on this, because I, for one, realize that businesses, business owners, they have a responsibility to other employees, suppliers, customers. Um, this is a two-way street, and I'm... The best thing we can do for any of us that are grieving is to always tell the truth. And for me, I had a choice. I mean, I really didn't. I needed the money, but I had a choice. I wasn't locked into a contract with that employer. I could have quit and gone somewhere else or not worked. I couldn't. I couldn't afford it. But you know what I'm saying? But I chose to go back to work. I chose to take my grief to work. So there's certain things that, that I have to understand when I do present myself back into that environment. Now, I don't say that coldly, but at the same time, that employer's got responsibilities that they have to take care of too. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody shows up needing to bring something to the table and it's not grief even in the workplace doesn't happen in a bubble. Right. Very good. But they have to be, uh, there has to be an awareness and understanding that, that sometimes when we come back to work, we don't know if we're ready. We think we are, Right. Mm -hmm. What if I've got a hazardous job like a forklift driver or a tractor trailer driver or, you know, I set dynamite at the mine, <laughs> something like that. You know, I'm going to come back to work and, and my, I might not be ready, but I might think that I am. Yeah. 
I'm like, and, and the thought in the, in the front of my head is like, man, grief is not the plague. Like it's not, it's, it's sympathetic, but it's not contagious. No. And, and I get asked that by employers when I go speak with employers and they ask me, what do we do when they come back to work? And I say, well, treat them as normal. Make sure that you've prepped the staff before they get back. So I don't watch somebody jump into a supply closet just to avoid coming into contact with me because they're uncomfortable with my grief. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we, we, we try to prep them. And one thing I always tell them because I get this question too is, you know, should we tell the, the rest of the staff what's going on? It's like, absolutely. Be respectful of the bereft. Make sure that you maintain privacy and only put out what, what you're allowed to put out. But it helps a bereaved employee when they come back in this manner. That is, when I come back to work and nobody knows what happened to me, nobody knows about my loss and the details of it, I'm going to get asked 20 times in a single day what happened. Am I not? Mm-hmm. And that's exhausting for somebody who's already got very little to give. It is. So that sort of alleviates that problem by at least informing the staff of what happened. So it's a very important thing to do, I think. Let everybody know what's going on. That way, you also get away from conjecture and rumor and things that go around the, the, the copy machine. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, and then you also get to this place of not necessarily normalizing it, but hey, it happens. Not it happens and nobody's going to talk about it Exactly. <laughs> in a whispery fashion, um, yeah. but in a, in a, in a company-wide BCC'd email that's like, just a heads up, here's the obituary for Paul's grandmother who passed away on Sunday, sending our condolences and then somebody in HR sends flowers and the whole thing. And um, that used to be my job. I've, I've never told anybody that on the show before, but I, uh, I was a front desk assistant for a marketing agency here in Chicago. It was my very first job. And what, one small hat that I wore among the, like the 25 hats that I wore yeah. was sending, sending flowers for people's loved ones who had died. And it was a neat place to be because I got that job probably 10 months after my mom died. And so to be the person who was sending flowers to people whose loved ones had died after losing somebody myself, right. literally the messages that I put into these cards were not the crap that everybody tells you while you're grieving. Right. It's, we're so incredibly sorry for your loss, holding space for you when you get back. They were or, truly heartfelt. Yes, because I'm like, oh, I've been here before. I have words for this. Even if I didn't really have words for this, for their specific loss, I'm like, I knew what I wanted to hear. And that even small gesture, I like to think changed uh, how, how people grieve. We're, we're not going to attract employees. We're not going to attract good candidates by putting out the, you know, the better bereavement policies and by saying that we understand. But what you're going to do is you're going to retain the best. Yep. And, and that's important. When they feel that the smallest things that you can do is so much of a morale booster for anybody who's going through a crisis. And I always like to remind people, grief is not just about loss. Grief in the workplace doesn't come just from the loss of a loved one. It comes from, you know, unwanted divorce or a major change in your health or could be you've become an empty nester now or you didn't get a promotion at work, right? There are so many different ways that grief can impact the workplace and so many different ways that the employer can do just the smallest of things to make a huge impact. Well, Ron, I am so delighted to have spoken to you today. I think this is the first time we've ever covered grief in the workplace on the show at this kind of length. I'm curious to know where people can find you and your books and your speaking gigs and just how to get in contact with you in general. Well, everything is is on my site. It's rglennkelly.com. Uh, it's got pages there for contact, pages for my speaking engagements, pages for books and videos and things like that. And I would be honored if anybody would stop by. And I'm honored that you you allowed me to talk about grief in the workplace today. It's a very important topic, not only for me, but for everyone who's going back to work. I think so too. And thank you so much for spending time with us today on Coming Back. Oh, it was it was my pleasure. It was to me, it's something that, that I can only hope that I can add value to your listeners. And and I will take some things away from it that I've heard from you today as well. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to R. Glenn Kelly for coming on to share the loss of your son and to talk about why grief matters in the workplace. 
our Glenn Kelly came back by having a visitation from his son Jonathan, and by writing his first book, Sometimes I Cry in the Shower, which opened the door for further conversations about grief and loss in his life. You can find a link to Arglen Kelly's website where you can access all of his books and seminars in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Our next live hangout is June 24th at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. One grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching.